1: Welcome. I'm so glad you can join us on Mission Evolution, where we bring the latest knowledge from today's leading experts to support your evolutionary process. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka. This hour, we'll explore giving up or showing up survival tactics for a changing world. If there's one thing we've all experienced the last several years, it is adversity. While it may be very easy to be positive and succeed when things are going smoothly, When the going gets tough, it's an entirely different story. Some people seem to excel during times of intense challenge, while others just roll over and give up. What makes a difference in how we respond to the trials of life? How can we become the winners regardless of our outside circumstance? With us this hour to delve into this topic is a man that has a long history of dealing with adversity, Steve Gibbelin. Steve, the author of Walking Through Mud, is a retired enlisted U.S. Navy SEAL Master Chief. He served for 28 years on active duty, 26 of those in the SEAL teams. He operated in the SEAL Operations Undersea Unit SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team and the Naval Special Warfare Development Group for half of his career. He was a senior enlisted leader for several commands and joint task force After retiring, he joined the civil services rank for another nine years, resulting in a 37-year career working for the U.S. Department of Defense. His website, frogmanleadership.com. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on Mission Evolution.
2: Thank you, Gwelda. Thank you for having me.
1: So you, you um, you have a pretty amazing career. Whatever prompted you to become a SEAL in the first place?
2: Uh, you know what? I, I I didn't join the Navy to become a SEAL. Uh, I just joined the Navy to, um, leave home and to hopefully grow up, do four years, go back home. And I was either going to be a, I was going to be a first responder of some type. I wanted to either be a firefighter or a policeman. And if, uh, you know, like my father and if that didn't work out or if it just didn't appeal to me, I had other trades to, to back me up. But, uh, what I really want to do, I just wanted get away from home for four years, get out from underneath my dad's roof, and, um, you know, and grow up. Uh, I found out about the SEALs when I was in boot camp, and that started the whole other path going.
1: Have you always been a person that likes intensity, or did you develop that through your career?
2: I grew up, I grew up with intensity in my life. So I, 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 I've always thrived off of it.
1: So, what is an underwater demolition man?
2: They were the precursors. Uh, they were under uh, UDTs, is where an underwater demolition man worked. He worked in the underwater demolition teams, and they were frogmen. Frogmen of the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties. They were born in World War Two, and uh, they, you know, enormous amount of uh, of operational opportunities in the Atlantic and the Pacific theater and the Mediterranean as well. Uh, Then after World War II, they downsized Korea, the Korean conflict came along and they ramped up again. And then after Korea, they ramped down again and then Vietnam came along. And that's pretty much where uh, the frogmen, the UDTs and then the SEAL teams, SEAL teams were born in 1962. And that was sort of the evolution in a quick snapshot if you can.
1: So, uh, would you mind explaining what a frogman does? It's uh, you know scuba, yes, and uh, what exactly do you do underwater when you're when you're working with that team?
2: Well, frogmen. So originally in World War II, they were surface swimmers. Is all they were. They swam across the beach and they uh, set explosive charges onto obstacles that were to keep the amphibious forces from going ashore safely. And and they also did some reconnaissance as well, uh, mainly in the Pacific theater. They reported on uh, Japanese positions uh, on the various islands during the island hopping campaign. And they didn't really get into SCUBA until the Korean conflict and about that time frame when SCUBA actually uh, came about. And they were the first in the military to use SCUBA in a combat role. Using SCUBA allows you to go subsurface And to do almost anything that you need to do within harbors, close to beaches, uh, close to, you know, inshore operations. You can actually attach explosives to a ship, which uh, that was actually used during World War II by the Italians and eventually by the SBS as well, uh, by the British. Then, uh, you know, you set your explosives with a timer on the hull of a ship and you swim away. And after that timer goes off, it blows a hole into the ship and disables the ship.
1: So let me let me see if I can put this all together. <laughs> you're putting on how, how much does Scuba Gear weigh at this point? Uh, 75 pounds, say?
2: Oh, tops at the most. Okay.
1: So so you're putting on 75 pounds worth of gear, then you're having to haul the explosive with explosives with you, go into an environment that's not user-friendly for humans because we need to breathe air, and then go into a situation that if you're found there, you're in trouble. How do you hold it together while you're doing that?
2: Uh, you know, a lot of it is, is training. And uh, the training that we're put through, all starting from buds, and then even when you're in the teams, it's stress inoculation is what they do for us. And it's, it just ramps up that stress during training. So when you go in on a real world operation, it really doesn't feel much different than what you did during training, unless of course you're on doing a land operation and you have bullets clicking by your head. Um, that
1: sounds delightful.
2: Other other than that, uh, we probably train all all of special operations. Try to train harder than train harder than we do in combat. So when combat situation does come, you are calm, cool, collected, and able to make decisions smart decisions on the battlefield or underwater
1: so basically you've pushed your own envelope in training so that you have a little bit of leeway when you're on the job absolutely Mm. so what qualities i mean i don't think i could be wrong but is everyone you know with the right training could do this or just are there certain inbred and born qualities that one needs to excel as a SEAL
2: There are inbred, inborn qualities, as you you said, but there's also, uh, you know, they they teach you some of these other things as well. Not everybody grew up learning about teamwork and, uh, you know, being in a position where you have to operate with other people to complement other people and to create that team. Uh, So you learn that when you're going through BUDS. Uh, when I was going to go through BUDS, when I was getting ready to go, I was extremely anxious. I thought everybody was going to be a monster. I was six foot tall, 180 foot, 185 pounds. And I thought everybody was going to be a beast, you know, a couple inches taller than me, outweighing me by, you know, another 50 or 60 pounds. And when I got into training, uh, there were one or two of those guys. But everybody else, I was one of the bigger guys in my class. And the guys that graduated with me after we were done with training and went into the teams with me, some of the most unassuming people that you would ever come across on the street. Uh, so my point is that not not everybody has it. Not everybody wants it as they discover as as they go through the difficulties of training and the guys that do want it are those guys that will they'll have that forever. They will have that. That spirit, that drive, that tenacious attitude, they'll have it forever.
1: So here we are, <laughs> um, two, three years into some pretty adverse situations worldwide, you know, between COVID and the social unrest, and now we're looking at wars and the whole enchilada. And most of the people going into this um have had a pretty cushy life, at least in this country, until all of a sudden there's adversity. And what I've noticed is teamwork is almost non-existent. Everybody's whining about what they can't do. It, this time, more than any other time, you know, when we went to, you know, into a desperate situation, people were not really cooperative. What's making the difference and how can we turn that around?
2: It's it's in how we have gone into this cushy lifestyle, as you as you said, um, if people could just, you know, talk to some of the, and not just military veterans, but also people that grew up during World War II, um, they they really had to roll up their sleeves, and you know, it, it was it was one nation effort, a collective effort to help out the boys overseas, right? The our fighters overseas, the military helped to win the war, and that was for four years. That was for four years where people, you know, were on, uh, they had ration cards. They weren't able to buy a new car. They had to ration their gasoline. They had to ration their food. They had to, you know, they, women couldn't wear nylon stockings. And, uh, you know, these were some of the, you know, the creature comforts that were, you know, around, but they had to sacrifice. They had to sacrifice, the entire country had to sacrifice for, you know, four years in order to support the war effort. And I think if people can just back off a little bit, take a look at the bigger picture and really try to understand as to, you know, what this is and what either the help, their help will provide, or if they go against the grain, you know, what happens? Um, you know, it, it, life just doesn't, it doesn't work out well.
1: So it's, you know, you were talking about, and I really love the concept of putting yourself through the paces before it gets real out there. You know, I mean, sometimes I look at people and they're up in arms about something absolutely ludicrous and and mundane that is an inconvenience at best. And I wonder what they're going to do when something real happens. Sometimes I think that about myself. What am I going to do when something real happens? Well, right. something real has been happening, but we haven't conditioned ourselves to be able to be... Um, Um, strong to have pushed the envelope of our own experience. How can we turn that around and how can we talk people into turning that around for themselves?
2: That's, that's a tough one because you're talking about convincing people to sacrifice and to, uh, and I'm not talking about becoming a minimalist and getting rid of all your, all your creature comforts that you have at home, but understanding what the situation is. And, you know, when everybody was locked down I I really I was already retired and for me and my wife it wasn't as difficult as it was for other people that still had to work still had to send kids to school and a lot of these things it is extremely difficult and I understand getting upset about some of the smallest things that then just piles on top of one you know on each thing so people drive into work You know, traffic. Traffic seems to be one of the most frustrating events in our life that, uh, you know, if you're commuting to work, it happens twice a day, five days a week. And getting upset at those people that cut you off, getting upset at people that aren't driving fast enough for you, um, you know, that that person that does the speed limit. How annoying, you know, how dare they? Um, It's... We just need to back off a little bit and, you know, and it's a mindset. It's a mindset every day before you, you know, when you get into that car, think about, okay, you know what, you know, first off, you should get into the car on time, if not a little bit early, so you're not rushing to work and being prepared for thought, thinking ahead of things that could go wrong, traffic, lights, accidents, so on and so forth, and just accept it. That's you can't do anything about it. We don't have the only thing we have control over in our life is how we react to things. That's it. Cut and dry. So if we don't react, you know, over the top, then our stress level is going to stay down and it just helps make your day and your life a little bit easier.
1: You know there's there's a lot of different things that that we can do. not everybody likes them, but you know extreme sports, you know working out hard, um, you know, pushing your own envelope a little bit so that you aren't taken off guard um, that that's to me that when you said that that really resonated with me is that I know that I'm strong because my life wasn't easy, and I see people like my sister who was born later. Um, her life compared to mine was a lot easier and she doesn't have the resilience that I do. How can we develop resilience without expo- intentionally exposing ourselves to trauma and damage?
2: It's it's a gradual, uh, you know, stair step to, uh, you know, to be able to do that, pushing yourself. So, you know, you tell yourself that you want to go run a marathon. You've never run five miles before in your life you don't go out you don't start running a marathon the first time you hit the street to run, you build up to it. You start with a mile, then you go two miles and you go three miles, right? It's the same thing with building that resilience in yourself and being able to, uh, you know, withstand and, you know, take these things that come at you building that resiliency. Uh, you have to keep on pushing yourself every day going out and doing something strenuous, you know, if you can, whether it's, you know, yard work, whatever, Um, you know, and and continuing to push yourself and and putting that strain on yourself and or even academically, pushing yourself academically to, you know, beyond what you're normally used to doing. Uh, In work, same thing, you know, uh, you know, not everybody's up to going out and doing something physically hard every day but even doing something mentally hard every day, mentally challenging yourself every day. If you learn something new every day, one thing every day, in a year you learn 365 things.
1: <laughs> so true. There's, there's this concept of uh, pushing yourself to the point of failure, but then going clear back to the beginning rather than the point of failure to move forward. Uh, did, did you guys use that in the, in the SEALs?
2: yes uh so better to do it better to fail in training than to fail in combat and uh you know again you know the more you bleed in training the less you'll bleed in combat you know that same saying and you do push yourself to you know the failure if you will um and then you do back off and you go back and you debrief it and debriefing with yourself or with a spouse and, you know, talking about this or a partner or a friend, what have you, and talking about what what did I do? What could I have done better and how could I have mitigated anything that was, you know, anything that did go wrong? That is, in essence, what we did every day during training.
1: So how do we have to reevaluate or readdress or reapproach our feelings about failure. If you're going to push yourself to failure, I mean, we're taught never fail, and so I think it really puts a ceiling on what we're able to do because we're afraid of failure. Do you have to rethink that a little bit before you can do this method?
2: Sure, you do. You have to be able to accept failure. You have to be able to accept that not everything is going to go perfect, and you may not get it right the first time, every time. Uh, I think people set expectations a little bit too high for themselves, um, you know, and I've, I've taught people how to skydive. I've taught people how to shoot guns. I've taught people how to swim and, you know, like the, the swimmer that gets in the pool, you know, the very first time swimmer, it's extremely frustrating. They want to be able to swim and glide like Michael Phelps. That's not how it works. You know, if you think about the amount of time that it took Michael Phelps, they become the best at what he was That takes, you know, a decade. Okay. It's the same thing with just about anything else. You have to be able to accept failure, acknowledge what you did wrong, accept it, and move on. Try it again.
1: In so doing, uh, don't we build what I've come to call subroutines? So basically, a subroutine is um, a collection of actions that, when put together, form a seamless routine. Isn't that part of what you're doing so you have those to fall back on rather than having to rethink the wheel every time?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So if you're doing that and you're building your subroutines, um, and i we're just about out of time in this segment, but I'd like to go into what does that look like in our daily life? How do we build our subroutines so that we have them to rely on when the going gets tough, that we don't have to rethink everything? But it is time for that break. Steve and I will return very shortly, so don't you go away. This is Mission Evolution, www.missionevolution.org.
0: Do you enjoy paranormal sci-fi romance, yet find yourself tired of the same old themes and storylines? Then you won't want to miss Kahir O'Donnell's latest exciting release, To Taste You Again. Alien Lord Kane McKean knew the moment that his destined mate was born. He watched from afar, waiting for her to grow from child to woman. However, before she was old enough, she was stolen from her home world by flesh pirates. Kane searched ten long years to find her held in a suspension chamber a ten-year-old girl in a woman's body. He rescued her and swore to give her time to grow up, but with his very life depending upon winning her as a mate, has he waited too long? Get your copy today. To Taste You Again by Kahira O'Donnell is now available on Amazon or kahirahodonnell.com. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic
2: guru just told me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. SIMULTV.com Exactly. Are you guys psychic too?
0: Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com SIMULTV.com
1: Hello again. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. We're dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. With us this hour discussing developing resilience is Steve Gilbin. His website, frogmanleadership.com Steve, we were starting to talk about um, subroutines and an organized set of of actions that when put together and performed over and over again, become a unified action. How can we build those? And once we do, how can we maintain our um, spontaneity and our flexibility?
2: So I I was thinking about this and it starts with the person who hits the snooze button in the morning. That's, that's already on the wrong path. Hitting the snooze button only delays and procrastinates. And procrastinators, that's what they do. They keep hitting the snooze button on certain tasks. You approach the task on hand and you come, come into it head on. By not hitting the snooze button, you're not rushing. You are then developing those subroutines. And whatever each one of those steps might be, whether you, you know take a shower and you know, get dressed in the morning before you go down, and you know, get your coffee and get your breakfast, what have you. Uh, you know, those are all part of our routines. When something gets pulled out of that routine, or we start running out of time, time has now been pulled out of our routine. We then start to, you know, kind of scramble a little bit, and that then makes us, you know, just kind of scrambling even more, getting into the car, rushing down the road you know, the catastrophic things that could keep on happening, the ripple effect of hitting that snooze button in the morning. That is what disrupts your subroutines. So you can think about the same thing by getting prepared for other aspects of life.
1: So if you're um, on one hand, if you have your your subroutine and you're used to sticking with it, okay, and it's kind of a safety net, if you will, life does interfere sometimes and it interrupts our subroutines. And I've seen people that are so inflexible, they just keep plodding along with their subroutine, even though alteration is really advised at that point. How can we find that balance?
2: Being able to, you know, having some forethought and thinking of things of, you know, the what ifs in life. Um, You know, what if this person, you know, in traffic cuts me off? You know, what are you going to do about it? you know, are you going to have to hit your brakes? Are you going to back off? Are you going to change lanes? I keep on using this analogy about driving in traffic because really that is a, it's almost a metaphor for living life. As you're going down this road at, you know, 55, 65 miles an hour, and, you know, you have to anticipate certain things happening. It's the same thing with life. Anticipating problems that come along, and not losing your mind because a problem has come along, but dealing with it. And if you've already thought out some of these what ifs, then you're able to accept what's happened, change your course, and continue on.
1: Being able to change course on a dime right now, I think is very important. Can we do that and still have our subroutines?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You incorporate some of these changes. So if there's Again, you know, with the driving to work analogy, if there's road construction and it's going to be going on for a month, you now have to take a different route. Why would you keep on taking the same route and hitting the same detour sign when you know that you can take another route without even hitting the detour? Right. It's incorporating that new subroutine, that change into your subroutine to, to keep that day going.
1: So the more we expose ourselves to, and the more we're having to jump from one subroutine to the other, the more fluid it becomes?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Keeping that fluidity in your life, you know, keeping that that seamless, um, you know, those seamless transitions. You know, if, if it means that you have to leave for work five minutes early because of this detour, then leave five minutes early every day. You're changing your subroutine. And it's, we condition ourselves to do that.
1: So then there's the other side of it. People like safety. And the more traumatic, maybe in certain ways, um, or the more feel- fearful their family of origin was, the more they lock down around what they feel is safe, even though ultimately it may not be the safe option. How can we tell if we're locking down into our subroutines looking for safety rather than doing what's required in the moment?
2: Your anxiety. And where has your anxiety brought you up to at that point point? and being able to, uh, you know, decompress that on that moment's notice it again, it's, uh, you know, that's being present in the moment, mindfulness and knowing what to do, what steps to do, uh, you know, to do that, you know, having a near accident or, you know, a near accident almost anywhere. Right. Uh, you know, you could be out in your yard and your lawnmower, you know, something happens catastrophic, right? Uh, it doesn't really matter. It's, but being able to be present in that moment, go through those emergency actions of what you have already thought out and being able to, you know, execute it. Uh, I know I speak a lot like military and that's what I did for my life, but these are, these are just things that's, that require that, that forward thinking, that forethought and preparedness um, you know, we don't we don't let our tank run on empty, hoping that we can have a you know hit a gas station here in the next couple of miles. And uh, although we have seen people that do that, it's you know if if everybody could think about refueling their car when they hit quarter tank, never letting it go below quarter tank, we'll never see people walking on the side of the road with a gas can. But that's not always the case. <laughs>
1: It it just seems that some people, it's very automatic for them. For me, it's just automatic to, to see to the details of life and um, cover your bases. Other people, they just kind of float around aimlessly and are all surprised when things don't go well. What's the deciding factor there? And how can the floater shift their approach uh, without coming out of their natural expression?
2: That's, that's again, that's, that's thinking about... Um you know, not just planning your day, not just thinking one step ahead, but thinking five and 10 steps ahead. And, you know, those those floaters, as you say, uh, you know, we all know them. And they're, you know, they are people that just kind of take life as it comes. Some of them, some of them are more adept at, uh, you know, rolling with the punches. You know, and some of them are not, you know, some of them, like you said, are very surprised that, oh my God, how did that happen to me? Well, it's because you weren't thinking ahead. Um, you know, gee whiz, how did I run out of gas? Well, were you looking at your gas gauge? You know, were you paying attention to that? No, I was busy or, on my phone while I was driving.
1: Or maybe they didn't step out of their subroutine. Right. You know, that's the other side of it. If we're s- s- holding so strictly to our habits and not paying attention to what's actually going on in the time. So it has to do with situational awareness as well, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Situational awareness is key. And building that situational awareness is, again, Taking a step back, opening, opening up your, your optic, you know, that lens and being able to, you know, see what else is going on around you and, um, you know, walking down the street, you see the people that are on their phones and they're walking down the street, they have zero situational awareness, you know, dropping that phone down and looking ahead, watching where you're walking. You won't run into people. You won't fall into the ditch. You won't fall into that manhole or whatever that we, you know, everybody sees it on YouTube, that person that's on their phone and falls right into a hole. Um, You know, it's it's opening that up and being able to, you know, take everything in that's happening around you. And then there won't be surprises.
1: When I, I used to train uh, youth in wilderness survival, and the first thing I had to do was just walk with them and teach them how to, because they're, they're, and we all have been in this, in this generation, we've focused on a screen. That was our babysitter. And now we focus on our phones. And the peripheral vision is very rarely used. I found I had to train children to use their peripheral uh, vision Uh, and sensing before they could build situational awareness. And I think that this is a common problem with all of us right now. Would you agree with that? And if so, how do we change that?
2: Uh, I I agree with you 100% on that, Wilda. Um, You know, one of the things that I think that, you know, for kids, you know, when they're out on the playground, And let's just say that they're in a circle and they're throwing a ball around. I don't know how many people have ever done this, uh, but gym class, I remember doing this in gym class. We were in a circle and we're throwing one ball and you could throw it to whoever you wanted to once you caught the ball, but everybody has to pay attention because the ball might be coming at them. The kid that's not paying attention gets bopped in the chest with the ball, right? And they drop the ball. That's, you know, now expand that into life. And you know, all these balls are going around. You know, our our PE teacher would then throw in a second ball and a third ball. This is life. This is what happens. We've got multiple balls going around and some of them you can afford to drop, some of them you can't. But that increases your situational awareness.
1: There's a topic that you brought up that I'd really like to go into and that's stress, okay? All the tools that, that we've been describing here can add to our stress. Um, and stress, it eats us alive. It really does. How can we engage in this and not push our stress over the, over the limit? Because, you know, we're having to constantly be aware from what we've been describing here. How When do we just kick back and how can we do that?
2: I, I recently read an article and it's about, being still. And it's not meditation. Uh, You know, although you can meditate while doing that, but taking that time, whether it's in the morning, at night, midday, even in the office, sitting behind your desk, taking that five minute break, and deep breathing, and being able to just be still and clear your mind of things. And you'd be surprised at that reset, what it does for you—clarity, um, anxiety—you know the the intensity in life, and you know all of those things that, that bundle up and just create this, you know, this intense emotion that we have going on. That clouds our clouds our vision, that clouds our decision making, and it's it's really done wonders for me. I've I've been meditating now for the last you know several years. And I was taught that in order to reduce, you know, my own personal anxieties and my stress. And believe it or not, you could do this while you're in the car waiting at a traffic light. You can just sit there and just be still, be quiet, be in the moment. And it will, you know, it brings down that anxiety level.
1: So you developed some um, skills, meditation for one. Are those... um... Advocated in the military, or did you have to come up with those on your own as a result of all the stress of being in the military?
2: They are advocated in the military, and they're they're now now they're teaching military wide, um, you know, everybody on how to do this. You know, teaching them to be able to lay there, you know, or sit there, or even stand there, and just be able to breathe, breathe in deeply, exhale deeply. And how that can bring down the blood pressure, the anxiety level on things. And it's, we learned how to do some of this unwittingly. I learned how to do some of this when I was in the teams going through training. And, you know, doing breath hold exercises in the pool or in the ocean. Diving in water that you can't even see your hand in front of your face. But still being able to move forward. And it's being calm and being able to go through with the exercise. It's, it's amazing what that taught us in you know, the ability to be resilient and to be able to take these things, these surprises, but also being able to operate in the unknown.
1: I'm, I know that, that PTSD, let's bring that one up, is a huge issue in the military. Um, would you speak to that a little bit, please?
2: Yeah, uh, you know PTSD isn't just a military thing. Um the if you look around and you people that experience certain events in their life and it could be anybody a car accident can cause PTSD depending on what that outcome was um a, a situation walking down the street uh there was just on the news last night where some gal avoided being abducted and was able to wrestle free from the you know from the person that was trying to abduct her and run to a car if she doesn't have PTSD in the future, I would be surprised. It was a traumatic event. And it's, again, it is all the, all the methods that I just explained to you about, you know, the, the deep breathing, the meditation and the, you know, forethought, thinking of, you know, thinking ahead on things. These are the things that all these, all these tools that could help you out with the PTSD. Um, being diagnosed with PTSD, I myself have been diagnosed with PTSD. At first, it's hard to accept. At first, it is just something that I don't have this. I don't want to have it. You have to accept it first. And then when you start to talk about it, you realize, you know, you start off really small and you start talking to other people, you know, onesies and twosies about it. Um, and you realize that some, some of my best friends have it. And you know, some of my best friends are—we're we're all military guys. We all were in the SEAL teams together, um, so there's no surprise there. But it's uh, to really go in deep as to what causes PTSD. I mean, there's books out there. There's reams of it out there. I wrote about it in one of my chapters. But it's you know, it's the adrenaline that you know that those spikes that you never really come down from. And again, it just it builds and builds and builds. Uh, depending on how many of these situations that you've been exposed to, I could think of one non-military uh, profession that, that experiences that all the time, and that's firefighters, our first responders.
1: Yeah, police officers.
2: <laughs> yeah. Police officers, and a lot of us… Uh-
1: a lot of us in this day and age, I, I, I fear for our children that have uh, lived through COVID because the parents got upset. Everything changed. They probably have their fair share of PTSD that they'll have to deal with.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, social separation, um, you know, being able to talk to your friends just how you and I are talking right now. But, you know, if that's the only way that you can do it. It is going to develop some form of uh, you know a PTSD like symptom, if not PTSD itself. Okay. Our children are you know our teens and our pre you know preteens they were not prepared to deal with all of a sudden this social upset of you know not just social distancing but staying at home, learning from home, uh, doing everything from home. The walls yes. begin to close in.
1: Yes, for sure, for sure, Steve. It's about that time in the show when I have to ask you, what is your mission?
2: My mission is to to help anybody and everybody that I can to help help them understand that number one PTSD is should not be you know this uh, you know this stigma that's you know that everybody's afraid to admit when they do have it. and the second thing is is that we need to be kinder to everybody be kinder to each other uh you know get along a little bit better and try to bring this divisive country back together again
1: and that is the key isn't it is rebuild that team or build it for the first time so that so we have our people around us to draw on yeah so um what is your vision, Steve, for post-COVID? Not that we're, I don't know, we'll ever really be post-COVID, but on the other side of the, the trauma of this, of this whole episode we've been going through, what's your vision for the world? What do you think we can gain from it?
2: Oh, boy, that's a tough question. I think what we can gain from it is that, you know, these kinds of things are out there. And um, you know, there's there's other parts of the world that have been dealing with, you know, the Ebola virus, uh, you know, their own pandemics in their own right that have been able to, you know, been you know, been corralled in their own country. Now this thing has traveled around the world, you know, several times. Now we have several variations. Again, it's it's being prepared and accepting that this is here. We have to deal with it. Our new normal is dealing with, you know, what, you know, the aftermath of the pandemic, the deaths. We've just exceeded one million in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um,
1: well, Steve, I'm afraid we are at the end of our time together. Okay. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and sharing your amazing experience and knowledge with us.
2: Thank you. It was my pleasure.
1: Our guest this hour has been Steve Giblin. Steve is a retired Navy SEAL and the author of Walking Through Mud. His website, frogmanleadership.com. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka. For more information or to enjoy past archived episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org. Please be sure to join us right here next time as this mission continues, bringing information, resources, and support to our rapidly evolving world.